Hi, this is Bev Bevan, formerly of The Move and ELO and Black Sabbath, now with my band Quill. And I'm really happy to be on the Follow Your Dream podcast with Robert Miller. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream podcast. My name is Robert Miller, and I'm your host. My guest today is John Lodge, the bassist, vocalist, and composer for the Moody Blues. In 2018, John and the band were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So we're talking with royalty today. Among many other hits, he wrote the songs Ride My Seesaw and I'm Just a Singer in a Rock and Roll Band. He's been voted one of the top 10 bass players as well. And in the second half of this episode, as I do with all my musical guests, we're going to do a song fest where we will play some of John's better known songs and we'll talk about them and have fun and give you the backstories. And no one else does this on podcasts. My featured song in this episode, and I always feature a song of mine in each episode under the introduction and at the end, is called The Captain of Her Heart. My cover of a song by the group Double, or Double, perhaps. I chose this song because I always felt it's got a bit of a moody blues kind of feel. So, John Lodge, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Hey, Robert, thank you. Uh, yeah, thank you for inviting me. You know, you're actually the second moody that I've had on this podcast. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I wanted to surprise you a little bit with this. I had a guy named Alan Hewitt on the podcast not too long ago. Uh, I wonderful. know you've worked with. The episode has not aired yet. So you're going to be the first Moody to have your episode air. Okay? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, Alan's my musical director for my band, the 10,000 Lightyear Band. And uh, I've known Alan on and off for a long, long, long time. Right. Uh, and as you say, he was with the Moody's for like 10 years and uh, he's been with me now five years. And uh, um, yeah, we worked really well. Um, he's a very good friend as well as a wonderful musician. Yes, I agree with all of that. And I told him, now don't, don't uh, get me wrong about this, but the first song by the Moody's that I fell in love with was actually from before your era. It was Go Now. We've already said See me cry. I don't 
which, you know, became a pretty big hit in the United States. And I love that song. And that's what got me into the rest of the Moody Blues music after that. Yeah, Bessie Banks song, a beautiful uh, song. Mike played the incredible piano on that uh, record. And uh, it was a fantastic, it was one of my favorite songs as well, because I wasn't in the band at that time. I was uh, uh, younger than the rest of the guys. Uh, and I was still stuck in Birmingham at college when they made that record. And uh, uh, yeah, it's a great record, fabulous record. You know, and Alan surprised me because we discussed that when I interviewed him. And he told me that it was a cover because I always thought it was an original, but I guess it's not. No, it's a Bessie Banks song. Bessie Banks, huh? Yeah. All right. I'll have to look that one up. Yeah. So, you know, the great thing here is you went through the whole British invasion era, which, you know, was my era um, in terms of the music that I love. Tell me what it was like. I mean, you joined the Moody's in 1966. You're right in the, the, the heart, the swing of the whole era. What was that whole era like for you? Yeah, it was, <laughs> it was fantastic, I have to tell you. Uh, it was fascinating uh, because suddenly... A whole load of British guys had taken American music and we transformed it into Britishness. Uh, and it wasn't just the music, it was the fashion as well. Uh, we had Carnaby Street, which is really outlandish fashion. And we had the King's Road, which was an outlandish fashion, but expensive. Uh, the Beatles had a shot on uh, King's Road called Dandies, and uh, I was I used to shop there all the while, and uh, we all did. We all Beatles shopped there. I, I remember buying a, a jacket once there, and turning up a, at a club, and Ringo Starr had got the exact same jacket on. <laughs> and I said, thank you. Have we joined the same band or what? You know, and uh, but all the clubs we'd all meet, and, and there's about four clubs in England. We always used to try and go there, all of us, after a gig, and we talk about the gigs we'd been playing, where we've been, what we were doing, or we'd have a new album just released. You recorded. And you'd go, everyone lived in flats in the centre of London. You go to everybody's house and, hey, put this, this is my new record, put it on the stereo. And uh, yeah, it's, it was an exciting time. So everybody was friendly, is that the deal? Oh yeah, everybody mixed, everybody just mixed. Uh, uh, silly things uh, like, um, you you meet up on a Saturday night on a, on a motorway, a freeway near Birmingham. Even if you had hadn't had a gig, you'd go there, pretend you had, because <laughs> in there at twelve o'clock of the night, all the bands we'd be eating egg and chips and whatever, you know, coming from wherever they did done the gig. Uh, it was a yeah exciting time. All right. So what were your favorite bands at the time? Well, we were really at the forefront of it. Uh, 
and uh, the Johan Burns were just it's all the same time really because it was we all grew up the same uh, so um, we'd meet people like uh, the small faces uh, and Kenny Jones uh, is one of my best ever friends uh, I'm godfather to one of his children and uh, yeah we all we all would be doing gigs together and we all met, met up so I don't know whether there was any favourite bands. You just mates in other bands, really. I mean, you know that the whole British invasion thing took America by storm. Okay. And everybody wanted to be and, and hear and look like all the British bands that were happening at that time. And the music was fantastic. You know, I grew up in New York City. We had three radio stations on the AM dial that played rock and roll. And you could just go from one to the next one and you'd hear all this great music 24 seven. And it just kept us alive. Well, I, I remember it was it. Yeah. Hey, this has got beauty. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah. What a great man, you know, a great supporter of the Moody blues. And um, I think that's what happened when we came to America in 68 we realized uh, how much the British music was coming all over the airwaves. And that added another impetus, I think, to the British invasion. Uh, we realized, oh, they like our music <laughs> and they're playing it. Uh, and uh, it, 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 the, the relationship grew then, I think, with... America and British artists, and still uh, today. Yep. Now, you joined the Moody's, I think, in 1966, yeah. right around the time that Justin yeah. Hayward joined. Am I right? Yeah, exactly the same time. Okay. And then I guess your first big album together was Days of Future Past the next year. And you had a couple of songs on that album, if I recall. Yeah. Uh, we. Uh, we were invited for the record company, Decca Records, to make an album. They wanted, it was a pre-dawn of stereo, and they, they called it full frequency uh, uh, recordings. Uh, but they had hardware as well we wanted to sell. Uh, which we called in England radiograms, where you had the record player, the radio, the speakers, all in one uh, unit, you know. Uh -huh. And um, I, they wanted to sell both things. And they thought the best way of doing it was a, a classical record with a pop band, as they called, uh, doing Dvorak's new symphony. Uh, but we went in with a all our own songs and the orchestra had a lockdown session for a week uh, and made Days of Future Past. And uh, what was wonderful about it, because we, the head of Decca Records became a real supporter, a guy called Sir, Sir Edward Lewis. And when he was, he, he actually set up Decca Records in America. Uh, pre-1940, but he became a re understood what we w were trying to do 
because he was a music man. And uh, we had a great friend in him, and he supported us after that with all the recordings we ever did for Decca. Well, you know, you were lucky in a sense because there were a lot of the old-time uh, music guys that didn't get rock and roll at all. And uh, then there were a handful. You know, there was a guy, for example, John Hammond in the United States that, uh, you know, discovered so many artists and probably had a fight like heck to get them, you know, hired or signed to Columbia Records because that wasn't the, the way things had been run before. Yeah, I mean, I remember after Days of Future passed, uh, the A&R department at Decca decided they should be part of the success of the Moody Blues. They hadn't done anything at all to do with it. And we had a meeting with them one day, and they said, we've got the next single for you. And we're, pardon? Yeah, Somewhere Over the Rainbow. <laughs> and he was like, ah, good night. <laughs> and that's the last meeting we ever had with the A&R department. Yeah. Can imagine that's that's a great story. Don't get me wrong, it's a great song, but nothing at all. <laughs> it wasn't a Moody Blues song for sure. Yeah. Okay, I want to ask you a technical question here. I see in the background, nobody else can see this except me, but you got your uh precision bass, a fender precision bass, which I know you've used throughout your entire yeah. career. And uh I'm a bass player too. I've got a fender precision, and I'm gonna show it to you. I want to prove it to you that I got it right here. <laughs> Uh, well done. Now I want to ask you the question. What year is your Fender Precision from? Well, I bought it in 1960. We think it's 1959. All right. Because uh, it's American, all American made. Uh, and uh, it, as far as I know, it was the first one ever in Birmingham in England. And uh, I remember Saturday morning, as all body musicians do, you go to your music store and play the latest chord you've learned in front of <laughs> everyone else. Uh, but I went there one day, and in the window it said, direct from the USA, Sunburst Precision Bass. And that was it. I, I remember rushing home to my father and said, Dad, you've got to help me now. And... Uh, we went back up to the record uh, music store and my dad signed the papers and I got the bass. All right. I'm curious. What, what was the cost of the bass at that time? It was I, uh, in English money. It was unbelievably expensive. It was 115 pounds. Now, if I can tell you, you could buy a mini car for 450 pounds. So it's, it was the cost of 25% of a mini car today. One so, wheel of the car. <laughs> one wheel. So if a mini today was $20,000, you know, it's really $5,000. And it was a lot of money. I, I imagine. Well, you know, I got to tell you my little story. My base, my precision base is a 1960 base. So you got me by one year. And I actually got it in 1974 at a pawn shop in the no. United States. It was hanging in the window. And I asked the guy, how much does he want for it? And we started to haggle. And I bought it for $100 US. Okay. Yeah. Probably my best purchase ever. 
Uh, yeah, it, it, we're worth a lot of money today. Uh, uh, yeah, well done. Well but done. it's a great I'll instrument. Buy, I'll buy it of you for 150. You made, <laughs> you made 50% profit. You know, I had Nathan East on the show as well, another great bass player, and yeah. he made the same offer to me. But I think he made he lowballed me a little bit. <laughs> Not like I'll you. Send, I'll send you a, I'll send you a signed record as well. Oh boy, now we're talking. Now we're talking. All right. Now I heard an interesting story. I want to go back because you know this is called the Follow Your Dream podcast, and uh, I like to ask uh, my guests sometimes. What was your dream when you were young? I heard something somewhere that your dream was to become a car designer. Is that true? Yeah, I, um, I've always been fascinated by cars, always. Uh, and I, I think I drove my first car when I, not legally, but uh, I was probably seven years of age. And um, totally fascinated by cars. Uh, and I used to, uh, I still do draw uh, cars, mainly late 50s American cars, uh, and I squiggle, I squiggle them. I, I like squiggling. Uh, and um, I wanted to, growing up, I went, wanted to be a car designer, so much so that the school I went to, uh, uh, they taught French, uh, and I wasn't very good at languages, at that, that time, I don't know why, I just couldn't see it. Uh, I, I have to see things to be able to do it. And I couldn't see French. Uh, it's like I play bass because I can see it. I see the notes. I know what I'm do. So um, I couldn't see this French. And the French master said to me one day, Lodge, he said, I went to a proper English school where they called you by your surname. He said, Lodge, I want you to study the French car industry. And I want you to do it in English. <laughs> <laughs> so I spent two years studying the French car industry. And I thought, oh, this is magic to me. Uh, drawing cars all the while, facial figures, Peugeot's, everything. And, um, but at the, at the same time, what's going on in England, car design was coming uh, not the way I, I saw cars being designed, awful cars. Uh, cars were being designed in Italy for English markets, and they, it didn't look right, nothing like that. And, uh, but I went to college and studied engineering. Uh, not, I didn't want to know how the engine worked, but if I could understand all the engineering parts of everything, it would help me be a car designer. And um, I did that. Um, um, every night I'd be playing a gig. Uh, and and college and work practice as well. And uh, it was an inter interesting time, but by then, rock, by then I was 13, 14, and rock and roll had taken over my life. And I realized car design, nah, uh, I'm, I'm gonna be a bass player. 
Do you ever think what your life might have been like if you became the next, te- you know, own the next Tesla or something, designing yeah. a car? Yeah, it would be interesting. But uh, the creative thought about that is really good. But the creative thought about writing a song or writing a piece of music or playing your bass, it's instant euphoria, to be honest. Right. I agree with you about that. Hey, everybody. My Follow Your Dream handbook is an Amazon number one bestseller. It's a combination memoir of my unique musical journey and a step-by-step how-to for you to follow and succeed at your dream. It's available at Amazon and wherever books are sold. Check it out today. All right, let's go to the second half of this show, which is the song fest. And we're playing now underneath us one of your big, big hits, which is Ride My Seesaw. Tell us a little bit about that, how it came about. What's the backstory? Well, it, really, it's, um, you know, I don't do hypothetical. I don't, never do that. And, and in mon terms, it really is about having a glass of water. Is it half full or half empty? And my life, it's got to be half full all the while. And right my seesaw, really... Uh, there's co- different connotations in there with the lyrics, if you list uh, the lyrics. But the, one of the basic things is you're going to have, have highs in your life and you're going to have lows in your life. And it's what you interpret it or what you hang on to that's going to de- develop your lifestyle. And you can't stay up at the top all the while. So you can't stay up the bottom all the while. Is you've got to get the real balance and realize it's an up and down world. It, it is an up and down world, and uh, what you may have learned at school may not be relevant anymore. But it was relevant at some time in your life, you know. So if you take that on board, you can analyze what you've got to do next. Um, and, and that's what, to, to me, that's how I uh, conduct my life. That's, that's terrific. It's so interesting to hear, you know, you had such depth yes. in the lyrics. And, you know, on a certain level, it's a song. It's a rock and roll song. People enjoy it. They enjoy the music, the beat, etc. But it's really nice to hear what was behind it when you wrote it. Yeah, it, it, you know, the whole point about what we decided to do, you know, Pre-Days of Future Pass, we were a blues band, a rock and roll, playing rock and roll. We'd never been to America. We'd never been to the Delta. 
We had no idea what Memphis was or New Orleans or Zydeco music or blues. No idea. Only what we were listening to. And we said to ourselves, hey, this is all about growing up. All this music we can listen to in America is about growing up in the old environment. We should do the same. Write about what we were growing up, our environment. And it's in a way an English uh, blues. Well, the next song that we're playing, I guess, also is autobiographical because it's I'm just a singer in a rock and roll band. us about that yeah and you know we came back from a tour one year uh from america and there's people in my front garden front yard as you say and i said what are you doing here and they said um well we've come to tell you you be flying the spacecraft to save the world and I said, I have to tell you something. I actually don't like flying, so <laughs> it, it won't be me. And uh, they said, no, when the message comes, you will fly. And they were adamant. And uh, I sort of hang around there. I'm just a singer and rock and roll band here. I know as much as about life as you guys. And uh, we all live in, in this same world together. So the, the basic song is um, about me just being a singer, but there's also reflections in there about the Vietnam War. Uh, and uh, if you listen to the lyric, one of the part of the lyric is the photograph of the little girl in Vietnam running down the street when all on fire and everything else. And I wanted to put that in, so in, include that in I'm just a singer in a rock and roll band. I don't know what's going on in, in this world. And uh, uh, it's in, interesting. I, I went to Vietnam about three years ago, went to the museum, and the first thing I saw when I went to the museum was this picture yeah, of this little girl. Yeah. And... Uh, it sent shivers down my spine, actually, because that was three years ago, and I wrote the song in 1971, probably. Yeah, it, was a, it was a famous photo, and it yeah. encapsulated the horrors of that war yeah. to the Vietnamese people. So good for you that you worked that into the song. Okay, I want to go to the last song in our song fest, which I think was in 1981 as part of your Long Distance Voyager album. This is Gemini Dream, which I believe you wrote with uh, with Justin Hayward.
So tell us about that. Yeah, we were going back on the road. And we'd had such a long time off not being on the road. Uh, and the working title was Touring the, U- the USA. I remember we, the touring, uh, the uh, working title with a song. And it just began like long time no see, short time for you and me. How fast the time goes when you're waiting for something, you know, and it happens. And um, that was the only lines of the song. And uh, the song just came together from that because it, it's about um, the Gemini world we all live in, I think. Uh, um, probably musicians more than all, because one minute on stage in front of 20,000 people, whatever, uh, and the next few days you're home doing the uh, garden. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it really is about that, really. Trying to, exactly the same as Cecil, really making sure you can balance those two things. But the excitement is being on the road again. Can you believe that you're still doing this after like 50 years? Isn't that amazing? <laughs> well, I remember when I said to my friends when I was uh, 19, this is what I wanted to do. And they said, what are you going to do when you're 21? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah. I think there's a famous quote from Ringo Starr, who was asked what he was going to do when the Beatles faded away. And I think he was going to open up some kind of a a hair salon or something like that. (laughs) I wonder how he's doing with that. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I I remember when when we started, just before Data Future Past, we, the five of us said, what do we want to achieve? And not a dream, not a dream, no hypotheticals. What do we want to achieve? And we said, it would be fantastic if the songs we wrote now lasted 20 years, you know? And here we are 50-odd years later. So I think we achieved that. You achieved your goal, absolutely. Good for you. John, tell us what you're doing these days. Uh, writing, uh, I'm recording at the moment some new songs, uh, which I'm very excited about. I'm rehearsing for my new tour. Uh, I've looked at the songs I've written over the years, and I'm going to be including some deep cuts in my new show. I'm also going to be including uh, songs. Uh, for my mates in the Moody Blues, you know, because I want to keep the Moody Blues music alive and I want to perform that on stage. So I'm rehearsing that up at the moment. And then uh, in beginning of April, I'm going on the uh, Flower Power Cruise with the Hollies and Zombies and I think Reformed Canned Heat and a whole load of people. So... uh, I'm looking forward to that as well, out of Miami uh, through the Caribbean. It's another British invasion, huh? (laughs) Another British invasion, 
Okay. So, you know, I used to be in uh, Boston in the 1960s and the big club in Boston at that time was called the Boston Tea Party, which was right opposite Fenway Park, the, the stadium. Did you ever play the Boston Tea Party? Played the Boston Tea Party a few times, but you mentioned Fenway Park. Fenway Park is my favorite. I like baseball. Uh, for my favorite baseball stadium. And um, I must tell you, in the 80s, when uh, Boston weren't doing very good at all, I always say after the concert, uh, thank you for keeping the faith. And uh, uh, I think after that, Boston started using keeping the faith. Uh, and then they started winning. And it's one of the best teams uh, came out of Boston at that time. And uh, they presented me one year with a, a baseball shirt with keeping the faith on the back. And I used to come on for the encore wearing that, as probably some fans in Boston have got me with a photograph wearing that. You have the competition to see who's got the uh, photograph. You see that, ladies and gentlemen? It's really John Lodge that's responsible for the Red Sox winning the World Series. <laughs> <laughs> All right. It's been such a pleasure having you on the show. We're talking here with John Lodge. I want to thank you so much for doing this interview with us, and I want to wish you the best of luck in all the things you're doing. Thank you, Robert, and good luck to you. And uh, stay safe and stay warm up there in New York. Yes, yes, yes. And now we're going to listen, as uh, I said earlier, to the song that started out the uh, podcast. It's our version of The Captain of Her Heart. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com and at thepgsstore.com. so hard to keep Captain